I need to know if anybody has ever said something like this. God, if you'll, you fill in the blank, then I'll, you ever bargained with God? When I was 10 or 11, I do not remember how old I was. When I was 10 11, I was watching a movie, and I think I know the actor, but that's irrelevant. Um, this actor somehow gets stranded in the middle of the ocean. Boat's gone down. You can't see land. He's about to die. He knows he's about to die, and he cries out to God. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like this. God, if you'll get me back to land, and I can't remember the percentage, but it's something like, I'll give you everything I have. If you'll get me back to land, I'll give you everything. As he starts swimming, he has energy and he sees the land. And so it like drops to 50%. And then as he gets closer to land, it keeps getting lower and lower percentage until he crawls up on the, the, the sand and falls over exhausted. And he goes, thanks for nothing, God. And as a kid, I thought, you're an idiot for talking to God like that. But, but that's, that's another point. Now, all of us have said we've done that, right? So my, uh, my bargainings with God had to do, when I was growing up, had to do with girls and my mama. And the bargaining was, whatever girl I was interested, God, please help her notice me. And when it came to my mama, God, please help her not notice that I'm late, that, that I, I hadn't done my homework or that I hadn't done the chores she told me to do. God, if you'll help this girl notice me, I'll do anything. God, if you'll help my mama not notice, I'll do even more. Because it just wasn't worth it in my house to, to tick off Best Washburn. Um, but I, I heard yesterday somebody was speeding to come in to watch Hannah dance. And, uh, and I kind of think they were bargaining, God, you know, I'm going to watch a worship dance. And if you'll help me not get caught speeding, then uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just assuming. I know they were speeding. They told me. Uh, it was confession right there at the dance. Um, God, will you help me not get caught cheating? God, God, how many of us have said, God, if my kids are sick, you would say, God, I'll do anything if you'll heal my child. Or if your marriage is in trouble, God, I will do anything if you will just intervene. Um, and we get ourselves into trouble, and then many of us ask, what do I need to do to get God to clean up my mess? Is there some type of formula I need to go through? Well, I call the formula religion. And um, trying to find the formula, trying to be religious can be exhausting and confusing. So many of you at some point in your life, you quit trying altogether. And instead, you started saying something like this. Since God didn't, I'm not. Not going to do it. And you walked away from God. And, and it, was, it was really, let's, let's put it like this. If God had behaved the way I wanted God to behave, then of course I would have behaved. And my question is, so that means it's God's fault. And if you're honest, you go, yes, thanks for noticing. It can't be my fault that I'm in this mess. It must be God's fault because he didn't close the door. He didn't show up. He didn't keep me from getting caught speeding. I, I just saw where she was sitting. <clears throat> if God, I want you to think about this. If God had behaved the way I wanted him to behave, then of course I would have behaved because this could be the theme statement for our resistor today. Last week I talked to you about Caiaphas and said he resisted God's plan. And anytime you resist God's plan, you don't actually stop God's plan. You actually assist God's plan and you become a footnote in Jesus' salvation story of history. So last week Caiaphas was our footnote. Today our footnote is Judas Iscariot. Judas, you just know him as Judas probably. Judas might be the most famous resistor, or maybe I should say infamous, because he was one of Jesus' original disciples. He was the great pretender. He was the traitor. He was the what's in it for me guy. See, for Judas, Jesus was just a means to an end. 
But before we're too difficult, too hard on him, let's remember that all of Jesus' original followers were the what's in it for me crowd. And we actually said that most of us come to Jesus because our life just isn't like it should be and we, what can Jesus offer me? So almost all of us start in this what's in it for me crowd, but we said in our follow series, you can't stay in the what's in it for me crowd and become a fully devoted follower of Christ at the same time. It's impossible. Following Jesus will cost you. Salvation is free. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. Well, to illustrate this point, one time a man came to Jesus, and we're going to read from Matthew 19, 16, and here's what he says. Teacher, what good thing must I do to to get eternal life? Now, this story also comes in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. If you combine all three of those stories, you found out that this young man was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler of some sort. So from the outside looking in, what more could he want? He's got everything but he still knows he's empty on the inside. So he says to Jesus, isn't there something I can do? Isn't there some good thing I can do that will get me eternal life? So he's bargaining with Jesus. He's asking, what's the formula? So Jesus says, keep the commandments. Well, there were so many commandments. He's like, which ones? There's tons of them. Jesus specifically mentions the 10 commandments, the fifth through the ninth commandments. He mentions, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and then he throws in this last one um, where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. You remember later Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? He said, the greatest command is love God, and then what's the next greatest command? Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus throws these things in there, and this guy goes, yeah, 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 I've done that formula, and I'm still empty on the inside. There's got to be more. Now, Jesus didn't mention the law in order to... Um, tell this guy how to be saved. He mentioned the law to show this guy he needed to be saved because Paul tells us the law, the Old Testament was given to us to show us that we're sinners, that we are lawbreakers. If you break one little tiny part of the law, the New Testament says you're a lawbreaker and you deserve hell and we all know that we've broken at least one of God's laws. So he wasn't telling him that he needed the law in order to be saved. He was showing him that he needed to be saved um, and that he was a sinner. And so the guy says, uh, well, I know something's wrong. I still need to do something. So Jesus cuts to the chase and he says, okay, if you want to demonstrate to everybody you've had this radical heart change, then go and sell everything you have, donate the proceeds to the poor, and literally come follow me. And the Bible says he walks away sad because he was very, very wealthy. Now, what Jesus asked him to do cost too much, and Jesus wasn't saying you could buy your way into heaven. What Jesus was doing was showing what was on the throne of this young man's life. What was on the throne of the young man's life? Money, wealth. Well, last week in our small group, we actually looked at this picture, and, and it describes there's only three types of people in the world, only three possibilities, and so let me run through this real quick. Up here, you see that this is a big S that stands for self. And this, if you can read it over here, it says the self-directed life. So it says self is on the throne. Interests are directed by self. So there's some interests, all those little circles, those dots. Some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller. And it just means that whoever is on the throne determines what's important. So you may feel like something is important one day. You may feel like something else is important another day. Everything in your life is directed by self. And notice Christ is out here. Christ is outside that person's life. So this is a lost person. A lost person has no choice except to be self-directed because they are, they are the God, they are the boss of their life. Here's a second option. This is called the Christ-directed life. You notice that Christ is on the throne and self is right here. Now, this person has asked Christ to forgive their sins and to lead their life, so they've been adopted into the family of God according to the Bible. Now, notice that all of the activities are the same size, and they all draw their importance, their relevance from Christ. Christ. 
The Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the, for the glory of God. So everything is the same. Everything, you can wash dishes, you can mow lawns, you can dance, you can, you can take out the trash for the glory of God when Christ is on the throne. So you've got the self-directed life, you've got the Christ-directed life, and then notice down here, you go back to self-directed life. The only thing that's different in this one and the first one is self is on the throne, Christ is in this person's life. We call this a carnal Christian or someone who is far from God, who, like the prodigal son who's walked away from God, still related to God, still has God in their lives, but they're not acting like it. And the strange thing is that this person and this person, from the outside, you can't tell the difference. I think that's why so many people don't come to church. Is because the self-directed life up here without Christ looks very similar to the self-directed person with Christ, and we turn people off because Christ is not involved in our lives. And so look down here, these, these activities, these little dots, they're different sizes again, once again, because they're not drawing their importance from who Jesus is, they're drawing their importance from who is on the throne. Now, this person, in order to come into this one, has to ask Christ to forgive them. This person has to ask Christ to forgive them as well. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so here's the three options. Now, the young man in our story, he's the first type. He's a self-directed, but he does not have Christ in his life. And his question sums up people's attitude when it comes to religion. When he walks away, Jesus says, it's very, very difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God because that's on the throne. And then Peter says something, he asks a question he probably shouldn't have asked, and it's in Matthew 19, 27. Peter answered him, we have left everything. We're not rich. We gave it all up to follow you. And then look what he says. What then will there be for us? What's in it for us? Even Jesus' closest followers says, what's in it for me? Now, I think we're kind of the same God, if you want me to come on Sunday mornings, you want me to give up Sunday morning, what's in it for me? God, if you want me to give up this relationship that doesn't honor you and is pulling me farther and farther from God, what's in it for me? God, if you want me to give a portion of my income to the church, you sure better tell me what's in it for me. Now, the danger with this is when times get hard, you're going to walk away because at the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's arrested, every one of his followers left him. Why? Because there was no longer any benefit there's nothing in it for me if he's going to be arrested and killed. I need to not just walk away, run away, hide, because there's no longer anything in it for me. Now, Jesus' followers, and especially Judas, I believe, had the Old Testament mindset, and I describe it like this. In the Old Testament, the prophets talked about a Messiah, and a Messiah means deliverer. So for thousands of years, they've been looking for a deliverer um, that would come and rescue them. They assumed the deliverer, because he was from the line of David, King David, they thought he was going to be a military man, and they needed, at this point, to be delivered from Rome. Rome was oppressing them. They thought, oh, our King David, our, our modern King David is going to come and rescue us from Rome, and they're going to reestablish the Jews to their top place in society where we belong. Now, the prophets talked about the Messiah, but they also, they said two things about the Messiah, said he would be a suffering servant and a conquering king, and they didn't understand the suffering servant part, so they tended to focus on the conquering king. We have the benefit of the New Testament. We know that Jesus is the suffering servant and the conquering king. Not two different people, one person coming two different times. The first time Jesus comes to rescue us from sins, he comes as the uh, suffering servant. When he comes again, what we talk about in Revelation, if you read the book of Revelation, is Jesus will be a conquering king when he returns and you want to be on his side. 
Now, Judas, as he looked at Jesus, he must have thought, this guy has a lot of great qualities as king, but he has two glaring problems if he's going to be a conquering king. First, he doesn't hate the Romans. In fact, Jesus doesn't hate anybody that we can tell. One time, he actually helps a Roman centurion. What's up with that? If you're a nationalist, you have problems understanding this. I think Judas wanted a leader like this. William Wallace You may take our lives, but you'll not take our freedom. Y'all all all know that, right? He was looking for this type of guy, conquering king, help us get away from Rome. The second problem was that Jesus wasn't uniting the people with the religious leaders. In fact, he seemed to be dividing the people because he said, these guys are whitewashed tombs. And and it seemed to them that if we're going to conquer Rome, we're going to need every body, every able body to overthrow this military called Rome. So Jesus, Jesus is, um, he's not the, the conquering king we thought he would be, and he doesn't hate the Romans, and he's not uniting us. So here's what it boils down to. Jesus' priorities were not the same as Judas's priorities, and really isn't that the problem when any of us don't follow? When we go to the self-directed life, Jesus' priorities and my priorities are not the same, so I'm going to put myself back on the throne. Now, last week we saw that immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas said he has to die. He's going to become too popular. And because Lazarus is is proof of his power, we got to kill Lazarus too. And this blows my mind that the religious leaders were talking about a body count to protect them. Now, Caiaphas, we talked about him last week. We're going to talk about him today because he needs some help in order to seize Jesus. Check this out in Matthew 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he just told them all this incredible stuff. You need to read this in the previous chapters. When Jesus had finished saying all these incredible things to his disciples, he said, as you know, they should have known two things. He's about to tell us these two things. As you know, the Passover is two days away. So we're on Wednesday of of the week that Jesus is going to die. As you know, the Passover is two days away. And as you know, the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. He told them many times, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. They should have known this. At the same time, look what happens in the next verse. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival. So they're coming for Passover. Thousands and thousands of people are there for Passover. The next day, um, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so they're going to have this week-long celebration, and there's too many people. Let's not do it during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. This wasn't about right and wrong. It's about convenience. Let's not arrest him now because it's going to be inconvenient if people riot against us. Let's wait until they're gone when they can't oppose us and we'll kill him secretly because if he's not here, it's going to be more convenient for us. Now, at this point in the story, so we're at Matthew 26, verse 5, we're about to flash back to the Saturday before that. All right, today is Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus' triumphal entry. We'll talk about that in just a second. But we're back to Saturday now, and he wants to give you some context of why Judas decided to turn on Jesus at this point. So we're on Saturday, and we're in the the little town of Bethany. Now, here's here's what I think Judas was thinking. If Jesus is not going to act the way I think he should act, I've got to take matters into my own hands. And I think you and I have behaved that way. If Jesus isn't going to do what I want, when I want, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and then we whine and cry about the consequences of our decisions. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. 
Now, this was the day before the triumphal entry, and I want to show you a couple things. I showed you these pictures last week, but I want to show you again. Here's Bethany, here's Jerusalem, and there's the Mount of Olives. Now, the reason this is significant to me is Bethany was about one and a half miles away from Jerusalem. It's very, very close. This is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The news got to Jerusalem. That's why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Next picture. Here's the Mount of Olives. I told you this, this is this whole range. It actually goes further than this. It's not one sim- single mount. It's a whole mountain range is the Mount of Olives. If you notice down here, there's this massive church. Uh, it's very extravagant. But the thing I like about it is right here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we got to go there. And, and what's significant about the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus goes and prays the night before he's arrested, the night before he's killed. And um, what's also interesting, next picture, is this is the top of the Mount of Olives looking over towards Old Jerusalem. You can see the wall right here. That's what's considered Old Jerusalem. This is the Dome of the Rock, which is on the place where the temple would have been during Jesus' time. Now, if you look right here, uh, right there, you can see the Eastern Gate. The Eastern Gate's very interesting because when Jesus comes in and at the next day, he walks in through the Eastern Gate. Now, it wasn't this gate. It was actually lower down and it was destroyed by the Romans and they've been rebuilt on, on top. But anyway, he comes into the Eastern Gate and what's significant about that is when he comes return, when he returns as the conquering king, the Bible says he's going to descend to the Mount of Olives and he is going to walk down through the Eastern gate when he comes to reclaim his place as the rightful king, as the one who sits on the throne in the new temple in the new Jerusalem. That, that kind of gives me chill bumps to think about. When we were there, Janie said, wouldn't it be cool if today was the day we were at the garden of Gethsemane? We were checking that out. She goes, wouldn't it be cool if today were the day? And I was like, yeah. And you know, It would have been cool, but it didn't happen, and we came home. Um, Still would have been cool. Maybe it'll happen next time I go. Now, okay, so here's, I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. I'm about to show you a picture that, that tells you the event that happened that caused Judas to say, that's it, I've got to take matters into my own hands, and here it is. Now, I searched for this picture because notice the jar right here. This jar is broken. Now, in this situation, she took some, some very expensive perfume and she broke the jar. It, you wouldn't have had a uh, cork that you put in it. That's not how you handled expensive things back then. Something that was very expensive, you would, you would have it sealed and you would have to break it. You would have to use it all in order uh, right then or it's just going to be wasted. And that's why the disciples get all upset about this. John tells us that the perfume cost one year's wages, an average worker's one year of wages, so I looked it up, and, and the average salary uh, in the United States from a couple of years ago, that's the, the most recent census, was about $50,000. All right, let's say you go to lunch today, somebody breaks a jar of $50,000 perfume and pours it on someone else's head. Are you going to think that's a little bit odd? I bet somebody's going to take some pictures. It's going to show up on Facebook or Snapchat, or somebody's going to tweet about it, right? Now, we first read this story five weeks ago in our follow series, so I'm just going to summarize right here, but here's what it says. The disciples were indignant. We find out later it was actually Judas who planted the seeds of, of indignation. And if you read Mark's account of this, Mark says the disciples were scolding this woman. How dare you waste this? They were indignant. Now, look what happens. Verse 10, aware of this because Jesus is always aware. Aware of this, how they were treating this woman, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? Now, when I get to the, uh, there's two words that I want you to repeat. She has done a what? She has done a what? Why are you bothering her? What she has done is beautiful to me. First of all, it's her perfume. What she does with it, none your business. 
Second, what she has done with it is a beautiful thing. Here's one of the things she did. This woman demonstrated how much she valued Jesus. Jesus, I value you so much that I'll bust open a year's wages worth of perfume to anoint you. See, later, Jesus' half-brother James in the book of James said, faith without works is dead, not faith without indignation is dead. See, you hear this term righteous indignation used a lot in churches when I think it's somebody's own ego has been damaged and they try to make it sound religious. I'm going to be righteously indignant, but I'm not going to go to you like the scripture says in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to go to somebody else so that they'll become indignant with me and it'll just give us an excuse to gossip and slander about you again. That's why they're empty chairs because the church isn't acting like the church. Verse 11. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now, if you read in the book of John, you'll find out that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And every time we read about Mary in the scripture, she's doing something remarkable. At this point, it seems she's the only one that understands that Jesus is about to die. So she anoints his body for burial before he died because she believed he's the resurrection and the life. If you don't believe that, look at the story of Lazarus. You're the resurrection and the life. It's what she says. I know you're the resurrection and the life. Now, Judas did not understand this, neither the disciples, but this is what drove him over the edge. Messiahs don't die. Do you know how long the Israelite nation has been waiting for the Messiah? What good is a dead Messiah? Judas and the disciples didn't understand. The, they underestimated the effects of sin. Romans 6.23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there's three types of death. There's physical death, you understand that. There's spiritual death, which is separation from God. That's the self-directed life, the first picture I showed you. Then there's eternal death. Eternal death is when you die separated from Christ. The wages of sin is first spiritual death while you're alive, but if you do not accept Christ, it's eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What good is a dead Messiah? A dead Messiah offers to pay the penalty for your sin. If you accept what he did, his his Blood covers your sin, and you're adopted into the family of God. A dead Messiah, without a dead Messiah, there is no payment for sins, and so we are going to hell. That's what good a dead Messiah is. Now, they're thinking, that's great, Jesus, um, but we're, we're not worried about her. We're worried about us. If you die, what's going to happen to us? They've already forgotten the perfume by this point. What's, what's going to happen to us? Verse 13, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Awesome, Jesus, I don't care about her. Jesus, like it's not just about you. It's about the world. My my life and death are about the world. Um, Jesus, you keep using that world word. I'm not sure you know what it means. Do you realize we're in a little village of Bethany? By the way, today, we're not even sure where Bethany is. There is a Bethany, but we don't know that it's the right place. It's probably not the same village. It was destroyed many times over. There is a place where they say Lazarus was raised from the dead. We don't know that that was his tomb. Jesus, we're in this little bitty village halfway around the world that, that, that from anywhere. Nobody's going to know. And Jesus said, For thousands of years, as long as there is a world, in languages and in countries not even thought up yet, 
when they talk about my story, they're going to tell her story in memory of this beautiful thing she has done for me. How many of you have heard this story before? Most of you are remembering it because you've heard this story before. Jesus was right on for thousands of years. People have been telling this story about Mary. How did Jesus know? Well, he's the son of God, so don't doubt anything that he says. Now, John tells us the instigator of this thing, the one who, who started off being indignant and planted seeds of indignation was Judas. And his real motive was he was a thief. He used to steal from the money bag. He held the money bag for Jesus and the disciples, so he used to steal from it. And so I want you to see this picture again, this, this alabaster jar of perfume. This is what caused Judas to go over the edge and say, I've got to take matters into my own hands. If your plan, Jesus, isn't going to benefit me, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. If your plan, Jesus, is going to cause me to lose some money, then I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Verse 14, then, right after that picture, right after the woman did this and Jesus talks about the beautiful thing, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you going to give me, give me, give me, if I deliver him to you? Now, people have speculated about Judas' true motivation. We don't know what it was. Um, was he trying to force Jesus' hand? We don't know. Was he tired of Jesus not acting like a Messiah, so he just quit on him? We don't know. But what we do know is, regardless, Judas was going to profit off of Jesus either way. If he does what I think he should do and we're getting money, I'll take it out of there. If he's not going to do what I think he should do, I'm going to profit off of Jesus somehow. Now, I told you all ago that, that what what kept Caiaphas and the religious leaders from, from arresting Jesus was the crowd, right? They needed an insider to let them know where he was going to be. And Judas said, I can get you when there's no crowd that's got to be worth something. And look what it is. It was worth something. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is kind of remarkable to me because Judas was an eyewitness of Jesus teaching in power for three years I hear people all the time, they'll say, if Jesus would just show, if he would reveal himself to me today, I would believe, and I, I just got to say respectfully, no, you wouldn't. Judas shows us if yourself is on the throne, you can deceive yourself and not follow Jesus. Judas saw it all and became so fed up that he traded um, his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That was the price, the going price of a male slave. I can give him to you. Here's 30 pieces of silver. Sold. In that moment, it sure felt like the right thing to do. And if we're going to be honest today, I think we've got to admit that the things that we've been tempted to trade Jesus for are worth no more than 30 pieces of silver. In that moment, Judas thought, well, if I don't act, how am I going to benefit? If I don't have sex with him, he might leave me. might be the best thing that ever happened to you. If I don't, if I don't do what my boss says, I'm going to lose my job. If you lose your job for God's kingdom, it will be the best thing that ever happened to you. What are you tempted to trade for Jesus? Verse 16. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, at this point, Matthew jumps back to the Thursday of Passover week. 
And it's time for the Passover. And he sends his disciples into town, into Jerusalem. And he says, go prepare a place for us to have the Passover meal. And so they go and they prepare. And it's what we call the upper room. And they gather together. And, and I think they're having pre-dinner conversation. Maybe it's pleasant conversation. Janie always makes our kids, anybody who's at our house, if we're having dinner and we're sitting down at the table, you have to sit there and, for at least 15 minutes and have pleasant dinner conversation. So I'm assuming this was pleasant pre-dinner conversation. And, and so some point while they're just talking, Talking about the day, Jesus gets up and he removes his rabbi robe, which is, which is the sign of his authority. He wraps himself in a towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And uh, I'm sorry, if, if you're going to be a conquering king, this is not how messiahs act. Stop being a servant, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, what I've just done is, is a sign for you. It's a symbol of what I want you to do. You think I'm a big deal? Well, I'm the Messiah and I'm washing your feet. And the story is not about washing feet. Here's what the story is about. The next time you think you're a big deal, it's time you serve someone else. And by the way, I think whenever you're depressed, you should serve someone. When you're broke, you should serve someone. When you don't have time, you should serve someone. When you're stressed, you should serve someone. Why? Because it takes your eyes off of you. Because when all those other things happen, you put yourself on the throne and you are center of the universe. And the only way to get you out of that throne is to serve others and love God, love people. When Jesus finished washing his feet, he put the rabbi robe back on. And we don't know when this happened. Somewhere in the course of the night, Judas decided this would be the night that I need to betray Jesus. We don't know if they mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane that I showed you a picture of a while ago, or we do know that Jesus often went there to pray. But sometime in the midst of this, Judas goes, tonight's the night. I need to betray him. He'll be alone. And he has a problem. How do I get out of this room without being noticed? How do I go notify the authorities that this is the night when Jesus is vulnerable? And while he's thinking about how do I get out, look what Jesus says in John 13, 21. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. If you're Judas, is that an uh-oh moment? <gasps> How did he know? I should have known. He always knows. And Judas is thinking, I'm not getting out of here alive. Because Peter went and bought that stupid sword Jesus was talking about. And he is looking for a reason, looking for an excuse to use it. He's thinking, I'm going to lose my head before I get out of here. But see, the question on everybody's mind is, is who's dumb enough to betray the Messiah. And they don't start pointing fingers at each other. The Bible says they were incredibly sad and they started saying, is it me, Jesus? Is it me, Jesus? Is it me, Jesus? And they kept saying, who is it? Who is it? And so Jesus said, it's the one I hand the piece of bread to. And so he hands the piece of bread to Judas. They don't get it. The Bible says when Judas received the piece of bread, this, that Satan entered into Judas and Jesus said these words, look straight at him in the middle of all the confusion says, what you are about to do, do quickly. Yeah, Judas, I know you're the one, but I'm not going to reveal you right now in this group. And in fact, I'm not even going to stop you. God's not going to stop you from doing what you intend to do. If you go on that trip and you're intending to have sex out of marriage or you're intending to have an affair, if you're intending to do something illicit, God's not going to stop you from doing what you intend to do. Now look what happens in verse 28. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Everyone is assuming the best about Judas. They think, oh, he's just running an errand for Jesus. And as soon as he's gone, Jesus says something stunning to me. 
When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. So think about this. This is nighttime. This is Satan has just entered Judas. Judas is about to betray me. I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to be tried, illegal trial. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be hung on a cross. Now is the moment that God is glorified. I'm glorified, Jesus said. And here's what that means. At that moment when it seemed darkest, everything is working out just as God planned. God's always in control. So when you think it's the darkest, God's in control. And he's probably about to do something, but you may not see it because you're, you have a self-directed life. We don't know exactly what Judas was thinking, but we do know he never expected Jesus to die. Let me show you why. Chapter 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. That's how we know he didn't expect Jesus to die. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. What was of extraordinary value, one minute, was worthless to Judas the next If he could have foreseen the circumstances, he never would have made that choice. Take it back, take it back. No, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that in the first place. I told you last week, your greatest regrets come from you trying desperately to hold on to something or someone that is no longer involved in your life right now. You traded something and people were telling you don't do it and you did it anyway and now you're suffering the consequences. 27, one through five. I have sinned, Judas said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? The religious leaders replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus was telling the story and he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Well, Judas gained a 30 pieces of silver world and lost his soul. In a sad bit of irony, Jesus in his prayer in, in John chapter 17, which is actually the Lord's prayer where he's praying for his disciples for us. He called Judas the son of perdition and it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used once for Judas and it's used second time for the antichrist. You don't wanna be on that list. Judas had said, what a waste this perfume. Jesus looked at Judas' life and he said, what a waste this life. Because Judas just didn't, didn't just uh, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He didn't just choose 30 pieces of silver. Judas chose hell because perdition actually mean the, means the one who chose destruction, the one who chose damnation for 30 pieces of silver, which are now worthless to him. Too many people reject Jesus for something that's temporary, and I'm just going to tell you the story of Judas is don't be that person. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. See, when you resist God, here's the deal. We, you, become responsible for the outcome of your journey, of your life. God's not going to stop you from doing what you want to do. He so honors your freedom to choose, he will not interfere with your freedom to choose. So if you don't want to have to suffer those consequences, then the opposite side of that is when we surrender, we don't resist, when we surrender to God, God takes responsibility for the outcome of our lives. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Is it risky? 
to follow God? Well, if you, if you want something that's valuable today and not valuable tomorrow, then it's risky. But if this can't save you, don't make it your God. Think about it this way. Carrie Underwood never said, silver, take the wheel, take it from my hands. I just can't do this on my own. Give me one more chance. Silver, take the wheel. That's ludicrous, right? No more so than what you're putting your faith in, what you're trading Jesus for on a regular basis. Just as ludicrous. Would you pray with me? Father, teach us what it means to have a self-directed life and what it means to have a Christ-directed life. Turn new life into a group of believers who want to be fully devoted to Christ, no matter the cost. Folks who will trust one another and allow each other into our lives so we can speak life and not death. Someone who will care enough to come to us and say, what you're doing is not honoring God. And we'll be mature enough to accept that because we know that person loves us and wants to point us to Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.